We have one, we have one more author uh, before the break, and he is a delight. Um, I had nightmares after reading Secrecy. I really did. I finished it. I was reading it all through the night. I finished it in the early hours of the morning. I fell asleep, um, and I woke up having nightmares about one of the main characters in the book. It was a night in Brighton that it snowed, um, and I looked out into my garden, and there was a shadow, and it actually resembled one of the main characters from the, from the book at the end of the book, and I was genuinely shit-scared in my kitchen. <laughs> Um, so, anyway, Rupert Thompson's ninth, ninth novel? Ninth novel. Um, it's as different um, from the last as all the others. It's set in Florence in 1691, and it's all art, sex, and power. Um, dominated by the Duomo, uh, and overshadowed by the Medici, which some people say Medici, if they're being posh. Um, it's a dark and dangerous city where secrets and lies thrive. Gaetano Zumbo, have I said that right? Gaetano Zumbo, not Zumba, which I thought was the fitness class at first. I was thinking about that. That's, I thought, well, that's unfortunate choice. Then I realized he was a real person, but there we are. Gaetano Zumbo um, is fleeing his past in order to practice his macabre art, which is um, making tiny models in wax of the dead and dying, tiny, beautiful, horrible models. Um, will his work and his soul be celebrated or damned? Will his forbidden love lead to death? Rupert's going to tell us. Thank you, Damien. Um, is that, that's about right, isn't it? Um, I just got a, my voice is a bit weird tonight because um, I'm hoping it's going to hold out because m my brother from Shanghai, who came over especially to celebrate the launch of Secrecy um, this week, um, forced me to drink vodka last night until 3.20 in the morning. And also... I'm not going to answer that. Uh, he, he, he also had brought this highly dubious small packet of what looked like uh, tobacco from Vietnam with him, which you had to smoke through a tall bamboo thing with water in it, and just the most disgusting smoke I've ever had. So that explains the, the slight... I'm a bit Marlene Dietrich tonight. Um, so, secrecy is, is set in Florence, as Damien said, um, set in a dark time in, from when Florence was a dark city. Um, the, the glories of the Renaissance are long gone. Um, the Medici line is dying out. Um, Zumbo um, is a wax artist who arrives at the invitation of the Grand Duke. And uh, he's a real person. Um, he existed. He made these extraordinary wooden cabinets uh, that contained models of plague victims made out of wax. Um, macabre, but oddly tactile bodies of the dead and dying. And that's really what's the strange thing, um, is that these figures are mostly small. They would, they would fit on the palm of your hand. But they have a kind of unnerving sensuality or flamboyance about them that almost verges on exhibitionism. And so there's, a, there's, a kind, there's something ambiguous there. There's, there's a kind of conundrum, and, and that's how books often begin for me. Um, they begin, a kind of territory opens out in front of me, a territory I can't see very clearly as yet, but, but feel driven to explore. So um, I'm going to read two short pieces. Um, the first piece um, is from near the beginning, and it's Zumbo talking. <coughs> it, ought to have been <laughs> it ought to have been one of the most exciting moments of my life. There I was, high on a ridge, 
looking down on Florence for the first time. Late afternoon, April the 18th, 1691. A burnt orange sun dropped trembling from behind a bank of cloud like something being born. No more than an hour of daylight left. Gazing at the buildings clustered below me, the jutting crenellated towers veiled by the mist rising off the river, I felt a piece of paper crackle in my pocket, a letter of invitation from Cosimo III. And yet, and yet what? Even as my eye was caught by the tilt and swirl of birds above the rooftops, I couldn't help but glance over my shoulder. Nothing there, of course. Nothing there. Only the quiet grass and the pines austere and dense and the mauve vault of the sky, soaring, vast. More than 15 years had passed and still I couldn't forget what lay behind me, what followed in my tracks. I'd always feared there would come a time when, as in a dream, I would discover I was unable to run or even move, as though I were up to my waist in sand, and then it would be upon me and all would be lost. I'd left my hometown of Syracuse in 1675, the rumors snapping at my heels like a pack of dogs. I was only 19, but I knew there'd be no turning back. I passed through Catania and on along the coast, Etna looming in the western sky, Etna with its fertile slopes, its luscious fruits and flowers, its promise of destruction. From Messina, I sailed westwards. It was late July and the night was stifling, a dull red moon, clouds edged in rust and copper. Though the air was motionless, the sea heaved and strained as if struggling to free itself, and there were moments when I thought the boat was going down. That would have been the death of me, and there were those who would have rejoiced to hear the news. I was in Palermo for a year or two, then I boarded a ship again and traveled northeast to Naples. I hadn't done what they said I'd done, but there's a kind of truth in a well-told lie, and that truth can cling to you like the taste of raw garlic or the smell of smoke people are always ready to believe the worst. Sometimes in the viscous, fumbling hours before dawn, as I was forced once again to leave my lodgings for fear of being discovered or denounced, such a bitterness would seize me that if I happened to pass a mirror, I would scarcely recognize myself. Other times, I would laugh in the face of what pursued me. Let them twist the facts, assassinate my character. Let them rake their muck. I would carve a path for myself, something elaborate and glorious, beyond their wildest imaginings. I would count on no one, have no one count on me. I was in many places, but I had my work and I believed it would save me. All the same, I lived close to the surface of my skin as men do in a war, and I carried a knife on me at all times, even though in most towns it was forbidden. And every now and then I would go back over the past, touching cautious fingers to the damage. And it was in this frame of mind, always watchful, often sleepless, that I made my way finally to Florence. I gazed down on the city once again. Set among the palaces and tenements was the russet dome of Santa Maria del Fiore, like half a pomegranate lying face down on a cluttered dining table, its thick rind hollowed out, its jeweled fruit long gone. I could hear no cries, no bustle, but perhaps that shouldn't have surprised me. I thought of the land I'd traveled through, the farmhouses unpeopled, roofless, the highways and footpaths overgrown, the unpicked olives staring like blown pupils from their branches. Ghost country. Up on that ridge, I dropped to my knees, not in reverence or wonder, but because I wanted to contemplate the world I was about to enter, to give myself a few moments to prepare. 
So, um, actually, I need a drink. So he, uh, as I've said, Zumbo arrives in um, Florence um, with the Grand Duke as his patron, and he um, he quickly becomes the Grand Duke's confidant. And, and one day, he's probably been in the city for about a year, um, when the Grand Duke says, um, summons him one day and says, um, "I want you to make me something. I want you to make me a life-size woman out of wax." And Zumbo looks at him and thinks, is this a trap? There's some, he doesn't feel very comfortable with the commission, especially when the Grand Duke says, it, this, this absolutely must remain secret between the two of us. No one must know. Um, Zumbo suspects a trap, but he has no real choice except to make the woman, which he does. And he delivers. It takes him quite a long time, and he eventually delivers it to the Grand Duke, and it's a great relief when, when the Grand Duke is kind of overwhelmed by the beauty of what Zumbo's made. Um, the Grand Duke has one caveat, however. He says that he would like the woman to have hair. Um, Zumbo can't quite believe what he's just heard. Um, she's already got hair, he says, on her head. Ah, the Grand Duke says, but not elsewhere. So Zumbo has to, um, well, a few days later, he goes to see the woman that he's in love with. Um, is called Faustina. Um, this bit, <coughs> this bit, usually when I read, um, I mean, I've just done a couple of readings, at Bar one in Bath and one in Canterbury, and usually when I read, I read, um, um, I guess you call them kind of U certificate or um, <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe PG. Um, this one is, is, is definitely 18. <laughs> I opened Faustina's bedroom shutters a few inches to let some cool air in. The afternoon sun fell through the gap and lay on the floor like a thin, bright strip of brass. I wouldn't normally have risked visiting Faustina in the daytime, but her uncle had traveled to Livorno to receive a shipment of spices from the south of Spain. Also, since I'd successfully delivered the Grand Duke's secret commission, I'd begun to feel more confident. There was no reason, I thought, why his goodwill might not extend to cover every aspect of my life, including my unorthodox relationship with Faustina. Before too long, we might have privileged status, if not actual immunity. Though everything was forbidden in Florence, anything was possible. I turned from the window and sat down on the edge of the bed. She was lying on her back with nothing on, the linen damp and crumpled. So how much did he give you, she asked. I told her and saw her eyes widen, some of which I've already spent, I said, on you. When I first arrived, we'd kissed and then undressed each other, and the present I'd brought had been forgotten. Now, though, I took a wide, flat box out of my bag and handed it to her. She sat up on the bed and lifted the lid. Inside, under crisp sheets of tissue paper, was a cream silk gown with lilac petticoats. She took a quick breath and fell quite still, her face filled with light reflected from the dress. I've never seen anything so beautiful. She leaned over and kissed me again. But I'm too hot to try it on just now. Do you mind? Of course not. In fact, I need you to stay as you are. I reached into my bag a second time, producing a pair of scissors. 
You remember the favor I asked you about? Faustina leaned back and looked at me drowsily, one hand cushioning her head so I could see the small round bone on the inside of her elbow. What favor? I asked if I could have some of your hair. That's right, she said, from the private places. I nodded, yes. I don't suppose you're going to tell me what it's for. I can't. What if I tried to guess? You couldn't. She rolled onto her side, cheek propped on one hand, and watched as I produced three tiny packets, each one of which I've labeled in advance. Armpit hair, left. Armpit hair, right. Pubic hair. You're very well prepared, she said. I asked her where I should begin. She touched her left armpit. Start here, she said. Then she moved her hand down between her legs and finish here. I bent over her and laid the blades of the scissors flush against her skin. She drew the air in past her teeth. That's cold. Do you trust me? She nodded. I began to cut the hair, which was straight and dark, though not as dark as the hair on her head. The smell that rose out of her armpit was delicate and bitter, like chicory. It tickles, she murmured. Try not to move, I said. I don't want to hurt you. Once I'd removed all the hair from her left armpit, I folded the packet shut. Faustina altered her position on the bed. As I started work on her right armpit, I could feel her watching me with a mixture of amusement and curiosity. It was as if I had an obsession, and she'd decided to indulge me. Not so far from the truth, perhaps. The right armpit was soon finished. As I moved down her body and knelt between her legs, Faustina turned her face to one side. I bent over her pubic mound. The blood rushed to my groin. Faustina had closed her eyes, and her breasts rose and fell with every slow, deep breath. From where I crouched, between her knees, she looked foreshortened, reduced to a succession of erotic places. Clitoris, nipples, lips. I wondered if she could sense my erection. Trying to ignore it, I began to sniff at the dark, inverted triangle. Strange, I murmured, how this hair differs from your other hair. Which do you prefer? I prefer it all. Eyes still closed, she smiled. There's no part of you, I said, that I don't prefer. You're not making any sense. The coiled springs proved hard to cut, and all the time I was aware of her cunt below me and its aroma, which was the aroma of lovemaking, a new mingling of her juice and mine, a recent ripe concoction of the two of us. To give myself a better angle, I decided to kneel beside her, next to her right hip. Turning my back on her, I aimed the scissors downward towards that little knot of pleasure, little knot of tissue that gave her so much pleasure. Though I was facing away from her, I heard her breathing quicken, and when I glanced over my shoulder, I saw that her left hand was up against her mouth. Once the packet was full and I'd laid the scissors to one side, I climbed over her right leg and slowly slid into her. Eyes still closed, she sank her teeth into the edge of her hand, just below the little finger. I closed my eyes as well and moved inside her, imagining the ribbed flesh, the supple rings of muscle. Mauve and yellow flowers filled the blank screen of my eyelids, the petals loosening and drifting downwards onto smooth grey stone. I kissed the soft bristles in the hollow of her armpit. Then I kissed the smaller hollow of her clavicle. I moved up to her mouth, which smelled of ripe melon. Not the wound-red Tuscan watermelon, but the pale green variety I'd bought in Naples once, and which had grown, so I was told, on the wild coast of Barbaria. I breathed her breath. I licked her lips. 
When I reached beneath her and held her buttocks in my hands, she trembled all over, her cunt seeming to flutter, and I thought of a fish in the bottom of a boat, a fish just lifted from the water. Then she tightened round me, and I came. The force of it threw me sideways, and my head struck the ceiling, where it slanted above the bed. I must have cried out because she opened her eyes and asked if I was all right. I think so, I said. I hit my head. The ceiling, the ceiling is rather low. She began to laugh despite herself. Does it hurt? I was laughing too, only a bit. She lay back. I came too quickly, I said. I'm sorry, I couldn't help it. No, no, it was good. I liked it. I saw flowers, I said. Huge mauve and yellow flowers, all massed together and falling slowly through the air. What, when you hit your head? I laughed again. No, before, when I was inside you. Flowers, she said. I've never heard of anything like that. Thanks. wouldn't have worked in Bath. <laughs> you know what? I, I took one look at the audience in Bath. And, <laughs> and you thought, no cunts in here. <laughs> <but> actually. <laughs> um, so I, I, I read the book really quickly and really did give me nightmares. And, 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 and I read it again for the, for, for the pleasure of it because it, it has much in common with, with a thriller. It reminded me a lot in, in places of The Name of the Rose and also of Perfume and the kind of monomania, but the thing that the recurring theme is, is a secrecy, and I wanted to read just a wee bit, a wee tiny sentence from the beginning of it, um, which I can find here, which is, um, secrecy could be imposed from without, like a punishment or an affliction, but it could also be cultivated or even willed. It could offer comfort, provide a refuge. And there's, also, there's all these layers of secrets in mm. this book, and it's never quite clear who's telling the truth to who. So, and, and Gaetano... Gaetano, yeah, Gaetano, well Gaetano, yeah. Gaetano, okay, thanks, yeah. Gaetano, um, you know, he, he's ostensibly the, he, the hero, but he's, he's on the run, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the levels of secrecy, I mean, it, it was funny. I, it took, I, I tend to write a lot of drafts of a book. So, you know, this one, I think there's a pile of 10 or 11 um, printed out versions of this book. And, and, you know, the idea is generally with me that I start out very intuitively and kind of writing with almost into the unknown, as I suggested at the beginning. And, 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 and I get, you know, I become less intuitive as I go on and more kind of rational and, and you know, more um, of a critic, I guess, of my own work. And so, so um, but it was odd with this one because uh, I found the title quite early and, I, and yet, I, and I was aware that there had to be layers, there had to be things hidden within the book, certainly from Zumbo himself, but also maybe even from the reader. Mm. You know, and I couldn't, it took me a long, long time. Um, it took me draft after draft to think what some of these things might be. You know, it was like I kept, uh, even on the eighth or ninth draft, I was thinking, there should be something else here that isn't here, and I just, just I don't know what it is. You know, and then one day, it just came to me, and there was, you know, there was, it's something, of course, to do with where he actually comes from. Mm. Um, the true story of, of, of his origins, I suppose. You know. How much information is there? I mean, I, I couldn't find a huge amount of information about him. Um, I mean, I know he's in the, is it the Specula or yeah, in, Specula. in Florence, which I, saw, uh, um, I have seen bits and pictures of his stuff, felt, which I is very small. I felt really stupid, actually, because I, um, I went to La Specula. In fact, 
that's how I got the idea for the book. There was, there was this, uh, I was living in Tuscany in the millennium in, in that, that winter, and, and a strange, uh, slightly spooky Australian nurse came round to dinner one night and For told any particular me reason, or she, she, just, she just turned <laughs> up? <or laughs> <laughs> I think she, someone brought her. Okay, yeah. okay. And, and, she, um, and she started talking about this museum she'd been to um, in Florence and, and these waxes, these anatomical waxes. And in the middle of telling me about all this, she, she suddenly stopped and kind of turned to me and, and looked at me and said, you should really go, you'd love it. And I thought, this is odd, because she doesn't know me at all. <laughs> or, or maybe she did, I don't know better than I knew. Um, and, and so I did go. I, I went a few months later when I was driving back to England, and, he, and um, uh, I, w- I was struck by something completely different, which was, um, which was the naked women in, in the hip-high glass cases. There are, indeed, you know, life-size, these life-size naked women whose, whose purpose is kind of unclear. They look kind of medical in one way, but they look erotic in another and and um, I completely, you know, it was mu- it was probably a couple of years did when I have, started. Did they have hair? D- yeah, yeah, they they had uh, they had the hair, okay. um, um, and but it was it was months later or years later maybe in that I realised that Zumbo had been in the next room. You know, all his pieces had been in the next room, but I hadn't realised. <laughs> so and, and his particular, I mean, it's remarkable to me that these because they're made of wax, so there's you know there's no reason. I mean, that, that they are so fragile and they've survived. All this time, they haven't mm. melted, they haven't been destroyed. I mean, is that all of his work? Well, no, no, they have, they have been destroyed because um, he made these uh, syphilitic... <laughs> he made these uh, studies of syphilis, right? Uh, and he was that, that kind of guy. And, and um, he, he gave them to Cosimo III, and uh, Cosimo III gave them as a special gift to this uh, prince, Corsini. Corsini promptly put them in the cellar. <laughs> As you never, would, yeah, probably. never looked at them again because you know there are certain people who look at these things and thought, I just can't, I just don't want to look at that every day. Um, <laughs> and and then the flood came in 1960, what six Florence, I think. You know, the yeah. Arno burst its banks, and some of these pieces were found in the gardens. Um, some of Zumbo's work was found in the grass, you know, floating about, and um, had to be rescued and and restored. But you know, so so things have gone missing, um, and and there's really not much. There's not much left. Mm. There are lots of um, so there are there are real historical figures in the book um, mm. like him and like um, like Cosimo, um, and then there are the, the figures of your imagination. You're not and supposed to be able to tell the difference. Well, no, you you can actually. Can you? No, I mean, and well, no, I don't <laughs> think I could actually. I mean, I could guess, mm. but I think I mean somebody like the Gothic tradition of the Mad Monk, for example, mm. is very much alive in the figure of Stufa. Well, he's not mad. Well, he uh, someone described oh, in the okay, paper. I mean, he's not a <laughs> rational man. When 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 he's kind of tracking people down in the slow and slaying them and singing mm. prayers at them, it's not that sane. <laughs> no, he's been he's he's in an extreme state at that point. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so, so 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 I wondered so so you know where you um, where you made that choice because what I'm trying to say is there's a very rich choice of person at that time, um, but yet you chose to make people up as well. Yeah. Um, is that because I of a kind of gaps? Or it was the other gaps? way around. I mostly okay. had uh, made-up people to start with, and then I started using more real people because I kept finding the most extraordinary <laughs> real people. Um, the, woman who, um, the woman who frames the book, bookends it, if you like, um, is this extraordinary, feisty, mad, eccentric French noblewoman you know, who's married to Cosimo and made his life absolute hell. I mean, if I came across these notes, she, she used to write him notes when they were living in the palace in Florence. They'd say things like, not one day goes by when I don't wish someone would hang you by the neck until you're dead. <laughs> and this would be while they were living together. 
<laughs> the love letters. Yeah. <laughs> but but yet, the inter- really interesting thing about that relationship is that he remains in love with her until the end. Um, mm. You know, despite the fact that she says all these things to him, he he still wants to be tied to her. And part of that is to do with the, the to do with the wax figure. But I just want to go back to Florence as a setting because I think that um, I, I never thought of it as as a city um, that was so. I always think of it as a, as a Renaissance city, as a kind of city of, of light and of kind of good, good things happening. And yet in this book, it's really dark. And you say mm. that, you know, everything is, everything is forbidden, but anything is possible. Yeah. How, how could that flourish? Yeah, it's very much like, um, it's, it's, I, I thought of pro, pro, um, Prohibition America quite a lot when I was writing it. You know, in the 20s, when, when you know, n- alcohol is forbidden, obviously, and yet, yet everyone drank more you know, underground. Um, and Florence was a bit like that. And, you know, the Renaissance doesn't really appeal to me, actually, as a, as a time to write in. I, and also, of course, it's been hugely written about already, whereas this, this particular um, era, it doesn't seem to have been inhabited fictionally. Mm. And, and uh, obviously, I like that. And, you know, it's interesting, because when you get histories of Florence, and this frustrated me at the beginning, you get these histories of Florence, and I'm looking for the bit I'm interested in, which is the nine, you know, 1690s. You, you go through the book, and it's like there's a tiny bit, tiny bit right at the end. There'd be two pages or something. So there, there just wasn't even much about Florence at that time. And, and yet the city is completely, I mean, it's alive pace by pace. I mean, it's very, very, very real in the book. And I was, it's just nothing. It's, it's alike and unlike completely the Florence. It was, that, it was that great that research. Did you live there at any point? No, not really. I just went there a lot. And, and, I, and the research was brilliant because I... All kinds of adventures. Um, you know, I, I, there, there was a ghetto in Florence in the 1690s, which is no longer there. And I had to, because I wanted to, as soon as I found that out, I thought that I have to set something there because it was like a, a medieval Manhattan. Because it, it was so small, they had to build upwards illegally. And there were, there were buildings that were kind of 11 stories high and tottering and 1690s. would collapse in the 1690s. And, um, and I, I, so I found a man who was an expert in the ghetto called Edward Goldberg. And he lived somewhere in the east of Florence. And you know, I, was, I was with him, and he was quite a strange, kind of hamsterish, dark, slitty-eyed little man. And, you know, and he, was, he was telling me all the things I needed to know, and he broke off in the middle and said, actually, there's something I want to show you. You'll need your coat. And he, he took me out into the streets. It was winter in Florence, really cold and dark, and we walked down this couple, few little streets, and then suddenly I saw a kind of neon star in the middle of a, a narrow street. And um, we walked in, and it was a, it was a lunatic asylum, and there were a few men sitting on chairs in this vast bare room, and there were fish tanks all so along one side. So it was an actual lunatic asylum. It wasn't like yeah, it was for me- dis- mentally disturbed men, I think mainly. And and there were fish tanks all along the side of the lobby. And and he said, well, and I, I went over and looked at them, and the fi- <laughs> they were nativities. There were there was Jesus and little baby Jesus, and you know Mary and Joseph on the bottom of the fish tank. Each fish tank had nativity scenes with the fish sort of swimming above. And I sort of looked at Goldberg, and I. He went, that's nothing, follow me. <laughs> went down this ramp and through a heavy curtain, and, and there was the most extraordinary... I mean, it was like Harvey Nichols, in the sense that there were three giant windows, you know, that went around in a kind of C-shape, and um, filled with the most extraordinary, elaborate nativity I'd ever seen. You know, there were, I mean, including things like dinosaurs going into the ark. Oh, my God. There would be a pair of dinosaurs with the other ordinary animals and a record turntable with oxen going around, you know, and, and smoke rising from chimneys and rain falling over there and, and just completely mad and almost impossible to take in. And I sort of looked at him. I remember that turning around and looked at him. He sort of smiled at me because he, he knew that I'd be thinking of Zumbo in some sense. You know, it was come some distant, surreal 
echo of the man I'd become obsessed with. I can't work out if that's supposed to drive them further insane or, or, <laughs> or it could be a corrective. Sylvia, I'll take your question because I know you have one. Go on. You've been doing a research, Sylvia. Yes. She has. That was ages ago I said that. <laughs> I remember saying But I did say it. Yeah, go on. Yeah. Um, it's very much a theme um, throughout in your work. Um, why do you think that paranoia... So why d the question is, why does paranoia come naturally to you? <laughs> in the nicest possible sense. <laughs> I'm feeling quite... I'm feeling quite... Um, of calm tonight. I mean, I yeah. no, no hint of that at all. at all. No, I think you're not. I, think I don't know. It, I, I've never. I've, I tend not to look back about these kind of things. You know, you, it's like when people people write things about you and they, they say things and then they expect you to react. And actually, I don't. I tend not to look back or try and recognise themes in books. You know, I'm sort of much more interested in the thing I'm doing and going forwards. And so everything that's, that I've done is is. You know, I opened a book of mine the other day and that I wrote about 15 years ago. I had no memory whatsoever of of writing those words, you know, none, nothing, it was gone. When we spoke about this book about a year ago, you, you said, oh, it's really big, it's really big, you know, and, and, and I got it, and, and I thought, well, it's, it's kind of substantial, but it's not enormous, and did you cut a lot from yeah, it? Yeah, I did, I, I wrote long at the beginning, um, you know, it's a great story about John McGachan, the, the Irish writer, and, you know, he writes these really beautifully, finely chiselled pieces of fiction, and, and they... And what, uh, what really surprised me is that, because I thought he'd be a sort of perfectionist all the way along, and apparently he wrote these kind of thousand-page um, first drafts, and then he'd gradually whittle back. And I kind of write long and short and long and short, but I, I really think um, I, 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 I'm getting more and more brutal with what I do, I suppose, and I, I'm leaving, I maybe even cut things out I shouldn't have done, but I'd prefer it to be like that, because you know, I want to be taking up people's time with, with something that's as good as it can be. Well, there is a sense towards the end where you think that it's, it's accelerated. Um, mm. every, everything happens quite quickly. And, um, and um, oh, I personally could have done with about another 50 pages. <laughs> that's because I was enjoying it so much. Other questions? Sorry, you've had one, Sylvia. <laughs> questions, questions over there? No, pal, she's not going to. Well, then in that case, I'll take the last question for myself, which is, what are you doing now? Next. Um, I'm writing a novel. Um, I've just finished the third draft of the, the next novel, so I'm really ahead of the game. And, and it's about... I'm, I'm being um, a beautiful 19-year-old girl. <laughs> All the time. So <laughs> 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 um, So lovely. writing in the first person. Um, and it's... What happens to this beautiful 19-year-old girl? I don't really want to tell you. It, it, it's an interesting book. I c what I can say, which is going to sound like a bit of a tease, but it was a... a, a a novel that I wrote, you know, I wrote this memoir, This Party's Got to Stop, and, and, and I just... Wonderful. Uh, there was a point where I thought I got cold feet about it, and I thought I'm not going to be able to get away with this book because my brothers are still alive, and it seems unlikely they're going to die before I've finished. One of them's alive. His brother's saying in the front row. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so. um, and, and so I got cold feet, and I thought... And I, suddenly this idea for a novel popped into my head. So in 2006, um, autumn, I, I just wrote this novel really fast in about six weeks, and then, I, and then I, the moment I finished it, I thought, no, fuck it, I'm going to do the memoir. So, um, and then oddly, when I finished the memoir, I didn't go back to this novel in the drawer, partly because my wife had said, I don't want you to write that book. Because uh -huh. I'd said something about uh, what it was to do with, which sort of is, uh, the idea comes a little bit out of our daughter. You know, it's something to do with our daughter. And she said, I don't want you to do that because the stuff you write tends to come true. 
and there was a superstitious... And I, and I thought, oh, right, all right, all right, I understand that. Um, you know, I, I respect that. And I then did some other things. And then weirdly, you know, last year, last summer, this book suddenly sort of kind of started, um, like, I could feel it in the drawer, even though it was across the room. It wanted me to write it. It was saying, write me now. So I, I went to my wife, Kate, and I said, um, listen, I really want to do that book you said I wasn't allowed to do. <laughs> um, what if I gave, give you, I've got this first draft, obviously, and, and, and I never show a first draft to anyone, but what if I give it to you and, and you read it, and then you tell me whether I can write it or not? And if you say no, I won't write it. And if you say yes, obviously, that's what I'm going to do. So she went away and read it, and I sort of tried to forget that she was reading it. And I also said, no, you know, don't, God, it's just a sketch, you know, it's not finished, it's, it's just, I, you know, so treat it as just an idea. And, and she came, I got a phone call from her, and she said, no, I think this book could be really brilliant. You should go ahead and do it on one condition. And I, and I can't really tell you what that condition <laughs> is. Uh, but, but funnily enough, I've been thinking along those lines anyway, so the condition is easy to fulfill, so that... I'm doing it. On, on that slightly gnomic cock tease <laughs> note, um, <laughs> we'll, we'll have a break and we'll be back in 15 minutes for Lila Shriver. Thank you, Rupert Thompson.